right. Our ushers are handing out honey packets. I'd like you to do is take the honey packet and uh, kind of uh, slit it open. And I'm going to have you do something in a second here. But uh, just to continue on our sermon series on common ground, where we as a church have looked at the common ground that Christianity has with a number of world religions and worldviews. And I'm not sure about you, but for me and some of the people I'm talking to, uh, this has just been an invigorating uh, series, uh, I think, for us. We, a lot of us know the differences, but what is the common ground that we have? And how can we engage in uh, dialogue and conversations and find that common ground and to kind of bridge off of that? And we, over the past few weeks, few weeks have looked at the common ground between Christianity and Islam. And we also uh, looked at, uh, last week, Christianity and Hinduism. And this morning, we're looking at the common ground between uh, Christianity and Judaism. So if you have a honey packet, I'd like you to just kind of crack it open. I mean, maybe put a, a, a little bit on your finger, or if you want to just want to crack it open and lick from the thing, however you want to do it. I'm going to have you do something. This is actually an ancient practice. This has been around for centuries of time. And I'm going to read from Psalm 119, and this is something that it's done, been done in Judaism for, for a long time, even to this day. So if you have a little honey on your finger, and as I read, I encourage you just to lick it or to eat the honey, Okay. Psalm 119, I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Now, this is something, as I mentioned, that, that Jewish parents have been doing with their children and the Jewish schools have been doing since the days of King David, even to this day. In fact, Tasha Stryker, my intern, uh, and nanny's for a, a Jewish family in New Jersey, as Tasha uh, attends Princeton uh, Seminary, and uh, they actually do this with their kids. So this has been around for a long time. And the idea was that rabbis and parents wanted their Jewish boys and girls to associate uh, something pleasurable, something delicious with God's word. That as boys and girls learned the Torah and the Hebrew scriptures, they actually would eat honey to associate God's word with something delicious and something pleasurable. It's an amazing uh, thought. And as we think about for us as Christians and think about our heritage, and we think back, for, exa- for example, to the Reformation, and one of the known terms during that time was sola scriptura. And what it was is very much the reformers calling the church back to the emphasis and the value, value of the scriptures. Very much like our Jewish roots of honey with God's word was sola scriptura was a calling back that God's word is pleasurable. It, it has a, a role in our lives. It's something that delicious. It's something that we need to lean on and have dependence on. And you would think of all the different uh, world religions that we're comparing and looking at that there would be a kindred spirit between Christianity and Judaism and the Jewish people. Unfortunately, a cursory glance over our history uh, shows that to be false. So I want to step in and look at our painful past, I think, between Christianity and Judaism. And it's interesting when you, you go back to around the second or third century, once Gentile Christians outnumbered Jewish Christians, and this is kind of going to be a history uh, lesson here for about five minutes or so. For those of you who don't like history, just kind of hang in there, maybe suck on your honey or something. Um, but 
uh, once the Gentile Christians outnumbered the Jewish Christians, uh, they took over and had power and made decisions to ostracize, to uh, persecute, and even kill Jewish Christians, Jewish people. In 325, Constantine called together uh, this council, the, the Nicaea Council, to develop this great creed, a creed that if you're Lutheran or Catholic, you've, you've maybe said out loud a number of times, is the Nicene Creed, and it's a great creed. But when, when Constantine did that, he called together the different leaders and rulers, Gentile leaders and rulers and bishops, and totally excluded the Jewish bishops, the Jewish Christian bishops and Christian leaders. So that's about 325 or so. Then we kind of fast forward, and this sort of anti-Semitism and persecution and hatred of the Jews uh, really developed. And it was an understanding that the Jews killed Jesus and that Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, had replaced it's called replacement theology. Gentiles, uh, Gentile Christians had replaced Jewish Christians, or Jew, uh, the Jews, as the new Israel, God's people. So we fast forward to the 11th century, First Crusade, and a number of awful things happened. But among them was the killing of many, many Jewish families and villages. In fact, uh, the Gentile Christians in a number of the Jewish communities would actually gather together the, the Jewish men and women and children and families and put them in a synagogue and burn the synagogue. And they would march around the synagogue singing, Christ, Christ, we adore thee. It's a painful past. It's a painful past. And as we enter into looking at this common ground, we would be remiss to not um, look at that and um, seek forgiveness and apologize for that. Then we fast forward to the Second Crusade, and Bernard of Clairvaux, it's my best French I can put together, um, actually opposed the killing of Jews. He was actually a very instrumental Christian leader in the Second Crusade and said, no, 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 don't kill the Jews. So he's able, he was able to, to save a number of lives during that time. But this is what he said about uh, the Jews. He said that... Uh, his strongest argument was that Jews were not meant by God to be killed, but rather to live in misery until the day of judgment as witnesses to the rejection of Christ. So Bernard said, don't kill them. They're really meant to be a cursed race, a cursed people, and actually to live in misery until the day of judgment. So we fast forward now to the Spanish Inquisition in the 15th century. And what happened there, among other things, was that Christians... Um, we're, we're telling the Jewish people that if you don't renounce your culture, if you don't renounce your heritage, if you don't renounce, renounce your past and accept Jesus as the Messiah, we're going to kill you. So what happened is that a number of Jewish people actually gave lip service to that because they wanted to live. They renounced their past. They renounced their culture. But the Gentile Christians wanted to test them on this. So during this time of the Spanish Inquisition, it was about, I think, 1400s or so, 15th century, is that what they would do is that during Easter, the Easter celebration, is that if these Jewish people really believed in that and renounced their past and believed in Christ, is that they would celebrate Easter with them. So that would be a test to celebrate Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, that uh, he gave his life and was resurrected, but also to eat ham. That's where that tradition started was sort of a litmus test on whether these Jews really meant that or not. And if they didn't, they were killed. Now, can you imagine this for a second? Just imagine, put yourself in that place. Maybe as a young Jewish person, and, 
in perhaps a young Jewish family, and, and, and maybe you've taken the steps actually to believe in Christ as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. And, and, and meanwhile, your people are being killed, are being exterminated. I mean, can you imagine something like that? Can you imagine during that, that, that time of the Spanish Inquisition where you'd have to renounce your people, your history, your, your culture? Yes, you did take a step in receiving Christ as Messiah, but you would have to renounce your entire history. Can you imagine something like that, being in the throes of that kind of situation? It's a painful pass between Christianity and Judaism. And this sort of same hatred and persecution and desire to kill the Jews continued on into the Reformation. And we're so thankful for a number of things in the Reformation. Um, as I mentioned before, the sola scriptura, the return uh, to God's word as central, because the church had really strayed away from that. It had developed these sort of man-made rules. Um, the indulgences, for example. And Martin Luther and the other reformers called the church back to God's word. And that's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, Luther was very instrumental on the persecution of Jews at that point and even into the 20th century. He developed two, and wrote two pamphlets that talked about the hatred of the Jews, that the Jews killed Jesus, and that they should be killed. Okay? That's about mid-1500s or so. And we fast forward to the 20th century. Those writings by Luther influenced a young, charismatic leader in the 1920s, Adolf Hitler. And Hitler believed that the extermination of the Jews was the will of God and the fulfillment of the Reformation. It's absolutely tragic. Absolutely tragic. It's a painful past. But as we look ahead, even during the 1930s, paradoxically, as World War II and the Holocaust were occurring, is that there began to be a new look, a new movement among Christians, um, realizing that they had bad history and bad theology towards the Jews. In a very influential book that was written by James Parks. And Parks, had, during the 1930s, had um, committed himself to really study the um, anti Semitism in the Christian church and learn more about Judaism and really seeking to build a bridge between Christianity and Judaism. He wrote a book called The Conflict of the Church and the Synagogue, and this is 1934. And this was uh, land breaking. It was an absolutely influential book. And his conclusion was that Christianity had based a number of things, just really in a bad reading of history. He said this, The Christian public as a whole, the great and overwhelming majority of the hundreds of millions of nominal Christians in the world still believe that the Jews killed Jesus, that there are people rejected by their God, and that all the beauty of the Bible belongs to the Christian church, even though it's mostly written by Jewish people. And that was his findings on that. And then we fast forward into uh, the 1950s when the world learned, it's kind of a delay uh, learn, learning, of the Holocaust. When the world woke up and, and saw the photographs in the 1950s of the Holocaust, then this view towards Jews and Judaism began to grow in terms of having a love and concern for them among Christians. And we continue on in the 1960s when Vatican II made an absolute important declaration. Uh, the Catholic Church said this, 
The Church of Jesus Christ acknowledges that the beginnings of her faith and her election are already found among the patriarchs, Moses and the prophets. The church cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament through the people with whom God designed to establish the ancient covenant. And that was groundbreaking as well. And, and pretty much from that point forward, from the 1960s to today, is that the, the Christian church, for the large part, has really sought to build bridges, is to develop interfaith dialogue and a love and concern for Jews and Judaism. And over the past 50 years, there have been just some great strides. But I think chief among these great strides, I think, is the realization that the common ground that we have really rests in um, the Scriptures. It is that the Old Testament and New Testament, or we'd say First Covenant and Second Covenant, are really one story. And that um, Christians, especially over the last 20 years, have sought to see that as one unified story. And that Christianity doesn't begin with Paul's letters um, or the Gospels, but actually goes back into the Old Testament. That there's this natural common ground found in the pages of the Scriptures, is that the Old Testament and New Testament come together to make one story. And I just love that. Uh, one writer says this, is that every page of the New Testament has a quotation or concept from the Old Testament not merely as a timeless symbol or an apologetic proof from prophecy, but because they saw the good news as the continuation and coronation of God's love with Israel. The Old Testament is said in the New Testament as an invitation to Gentile Christians to listen to the dialogue between God and Israel and to join in it. And over the last 20 years, probably one of the largest segments of, of Christians, African Christians, have developed a common bond with Jewish people and their story. Because for African Christians, they really relate to uh, the Jewish experience of suffering, uh, the Jewish emphasis on liberation, the Jewish emphasis on community and covenant and family. And I appreciate that appreciate it today that not only does has Christianity as a whole realize this, but I, I feel like our church understands this as well is that our faith, our Christian faith, has deep, profound Jewish roots. There is a common ground, and that our, our Christianity flows from Moses, from David, from Jesus, from Paul to us today. In fact, I taught a, a class in adult education a couple years ago on the book of Leviticus, and it was so invigorating for me uh, and so thrilling for me to teach that class and in Le- Leviticus, if you're not quite sure, is way back in the early pages of the Old Testament and, and really the, the, centr- the, the central aspect of the Torah and very much the heart and soul for Jewish culture and their beliefs. And as a, a class, we studied that book for a number of months. And for me to, to learn and explore that uh, with our church and to have a number of conversations with people was just so um, inspiring for me. That a number of us here in our, our church understand the Jewish foundation. There's a lot of common commonality between Christians and Jews. So instead of me simply lecturing and sharing, you know, just some research that I put together besides what I shared already, is that I actually contacted a Jewish rabbi, uh, Rabbi Ed Rothman and his wife, Alberta. They have a congregation, actually a Messianic congregation in St. Louis Park, and they've been there since the early 1980s. And what Rabbi Ed and his wife, Alberta, have given their life to is to share Yeshua, Jesus Christ in Hebrew, with Jewish people, to actually be a bridge. He sees his church community called the Seed of Abraham 
as a, bi- a bridge builder between Christianity and Judaism. So last week, he and I sat down at, at both of our uh, favorite lunch place, uh, Noodles and & Company, and uh, he ordered us a nice sort of Mediterranean mix, but I, I always default to mac and cheese. I just love cheese, and it was a great lunch. And uh, uh, Rabbi Ed and Alberta, just, we had a, just a delightful conversation. And I learned so much about their ministry, um, their love for Yeshua, their love for the Jewish culture, and what they're seeking to do. And this is kind of new to me, so, you know, for me, kind of tiptoeing on certain topics, and he just kind of opened the door completely, and it really opened my eyes to a number of things. So what we did then this past week is I sat down with Rabbi Ed, and actually we had a video interview because there were a couple of specific questions that he answered for me in our lunch together at Noodles and & Company, and I wanted him to reiterate that to you for our congregation in light of this sermon. And the first question was, is what is that common ground? Besides the scriptures, what is that common ground that, that we can seek as Christians with Jewish people in Judaism? And the second question was, is how can we effectively share Christ, Yeshua, with Jewish people. So we videotaped that interview, and here it is. Well, the common ground that I believe Christianity has with Judaism is first and foremost that we uh, share the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He revealed himself to Moses as that God, and he said, this is my name forever. And uh, of course, we have Abraham in common. Uh, in in the book of Romans, it says he's the father of all who have faith. And uh, in the book of James, it says that uh, we too can be a friend of God like Abraham was if we would just live by faith. And uh, Abraham had those great words spoken over him that was a revelation to Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith the God of Abraham and the scriptures. We have the Hebrew scriptures that enlighten us to the revelation there's one true God that he sent, uh, that we are all sinners and need uh, have need of atonement. In the first covenant, the atonement was through the shedding of blood, which we saw all the way back to Adam and Eve, where God had to shed blood to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve and all the way up to Jesus the Messiah saying, uh, a body you have prepared for me. And uh, he gave his life in exchange for all of ours. And so there's all the most foundational and fundamental truths we have in common. The things that are different are basically more, more ethnic or cultural, because really, as far as I believe, uh, Christianity is just a, a Gentile cultural expression of biblical messianic Judaism. And we are grafted together. It says in Ephesians that, that the Gentiles were once aliens from the, the faith of God and the commonwealth of Israel, but now being part of the family of God, we are now one family one commonwealth and in Romans 11 it says that the Gentiles are, are wild olive branches and they're grafted into the olive tree of Israel 
And then one more statement in Galatians 3, uh, it says that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, at, at, at face value, it means, well, there's no Jews or Gentiles anymore. But if you take it to the next level, then there's no men or women anymore, and we know that's not true. So what he's saying is that we are still men and women and Jews and Gentiles, but there's nothing that separates us anymore. In the biblical days, being a Jew or Gentile separated you. Being a male or female separated you. Being bond or free separated you. But in Christ, we're all brought together and become one at the throne of God, at the cross of Christ. There's no one better. There's no one worse. We're all loved equally. Another common ground we have is the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. The Jewish people tend to uh, just accept the first half of what we call the Bible, and we call it the Old Testament. They would call it the Tanakh. I like to not call it Old Testament because to Jewish people that's sort of a slap in the face, like saying, well, what you have isn't really up to date. And, uh, and uh, another problem is in America, we tend to take old things and put them on shelves or sell them to pawn shops or give them to thrift stores and or put them in nursing homes. But uh, the Hebrew people revere things that are old. And to them, the older you are, the better you are. And in fact, in Hebrew tradition, uh, you didn't know nothing until you were 30 and then you knew, you knew abyssal a little. And then 40, 50, the older you got, the more revered and appreciated you were because of the wisdom of, of your life experience. And so the scriptures, uh, the new covenant scriptures are really built on the first covenant scriptures. Uh, there's an old saying, the New Testament is in the old concealed and the Old Testament is in the new revealed. And that's very true. And uh, if you don't have them together, you don't have the full counsel of God and the full revelation of his kingdom. And so, uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christians sort of poo-poo the, the Older Testament or the First Testament because they think, well, that's all been fulfilled. Jesus died. It's not necessary. But the old saying is, if you don't know history, you're condemned to repeat it. And so that's our history as the people of God. And as I mentioned in another segment, we're grafted into the commonwealth of Israel and that we're accepted in the family of God. So the history of the Jewish people becomes the history of all God's people. You know, when you get to heaven and you see all these old saints with long white beards, you won't feel like, oh, what am I, a Ludafisk loving Lutheran from Minnesota going to do here with all these Jewish people? And you'll be able to run up to Abraham and say, Aby baby, it's good to see you. You're part of the family. And I mean, it's as real as it can get. And so there's no separation. Uh, it says in the end of Galatians 3, if, you're, if you are Messiahs, you're Abraham's seed and you're heirs to all the promises of God. So we don't 
There's a there's a an, a bad teaching in in the Western world now called replacement theology, and that means that the church replaces Israel, and this is one of the shortfalls of the Reformation and Reformed theology. But it isn't true. We don't replace Israel. We partake with Israel. So it's in placement. We're placed into Israel, and we share with Israel all the promises of God. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, with the replacement theology, it says the Jews get all the curses and the Christians get all the blessings. And that smacks of anti-Semitism. So uh, we need to be humble and reverent when we come to the scriptures and honor the fathers and realize they're our fathers now too. What we have found in sharing the gospel with the Jewish people is the most important ingredient is love and prayer because uh, everything else fits in but if you don't start with love and prayer, the, the rest is in vain. So it's so important to, for people to just say, God, I'm willing to love a Jewish person or family. I'm willing to befriend them. Please guide me to those you'd like my life to touch. But I guarantee you, if you say, God, give me a divine appointment with a Jewish person and let me make a positive difference in their life for eternity, he'll answer that prayer. And then as you get to know Jewish people, you don't push the gospel on them, you just get to know them and ask them about their life at whatever comfort level they can handle. Some people will be very suspicious. You've got to prove you just care about them as a person. And to have it made up in your mind, if we never get to talk about God, I'm still going to love this person. So that when they challenge you, you can say, hey, I just want to be your friend. I prayed and asked God, God, give me a Jewish friend. And they'll go, well, why? Because I, I appreciate the Jewish people. You gave me my Bible. You gave me my God, my faith. Everything that's most important to me I have from you and your fathers. And by the way, I want to apologize because my fathers treated your fathers with such disrespect and took their lives and destroyed their their families and their homes and their synagogues and there's nothing I can do to repay you for that all I can say is I'm sorry and offer my friendship and uh, that might have a profound effect and then as time goes on you can give them Passover cards Hanukkah cards uh, Jewish New Year cards you might want to take them to their favorite Jewish deli or bring them some of their favorite Jewish deli. You might want to, when they have a family emergency, how can I pray for you? And then someday, God may set up a moment where you feel comfortable or they'll ask a question. Well, what is it about you that makes you so different? And then read to them Isaiah 53. But don't tell them what you're reading. And uh, when you're done reading, just ask them, who do you think that was talking about? And I've never heard a different answer than Jesus. And when they say Jesus, you can say, where do you think I'm reading from? And they'll say, well, the New Testament, of course. And if you can say, well, I'm reading from the Hebrew 
prophet Isaiah who wrote these words 700 years before Jesus came to earth. And then you can add, I'm, I'm sure you're going to want to ask your rabbi. And he'll probably tell you this is talking about Israel. But just stop for a moment and look. In verse 6 it says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and each one of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's saying Israel is wicked and sinful, but there's this righteous servant who he's taking our sins and placing them on him. And then in verse 8 it says, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. That as you read the whole context, you can see that the Messiah died an intercessory death. He took the sins of the Jewish people and the whole world upon himself so that he could make us righteous and holy and forgiven. And so, you, you know, just say, all I ask is you do this. Just pray, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would you please show me if Jesus is the Messiah? And uh, if he is, God will take care of the rest. That was just a great conversation. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, we're seeing this repeated theme that as we engage with, with folks with other, um, from other cultures, other worldviews, other religions, is this common thread of friendship, is really caring about the person, loving them, and wanting to develop a relationship with him. And Rabbi Rothman talked about that quite a bit. And the importance of actually reaching out. And it reminded me of the words of Paul, You'll see on the verse on the slide behind me in, uh, let's see here, Nina. in Romans chapter 12 where Paul writes this, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. I just love that. And take delight in honoring each other. Always be eager to practice hospitality. So whether a person's Muslim or Hindu or Jewish, is for us to reach out to them, to love the other with genuine affection, um, to offer hospitality. Have you ever been on the other side of that, where you're the other? Where you're actually the, the minority, the person who's from a different culture and a different background? When I was 19, I actually had the experience of that. I was spending the summer that summer um, in Rehoboth Beach, one of the famous beaches on the East Coast in Delaware. It's a great gig for a 19-year-old. And I was working at a clothing store in that summer. And uh, this clothing store was owned by three generations of a Jewish family called the Gershmans. And I quickly, quickly became uh, friends with the Gershmans and just loving people. In fact, we became really fast friends that they invited me over to their house. They were having dinner with their family and their friends. And I came over. Uh, this 19-year-old, you know, just kind of naive and, and came over and, and uh, had dinner with the family. And we had great conversation. And it didn't dawn on me until a couple months later that I was the only Gentile there. I felt so comfortable and so at ease. I mean, they, they made me feel like I was one of them. And we laughed. You know, they made jokes about my strange Midwestern accent. But we just had this tremendous time together. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget that dinner with the Gershmans at their house. And, and our friendship grew. 
so much so that later in the summer, a couple of them actually invited me to go to the championship fight of uh, Mike Tyson and Michael Spinks that summer in Atlantic City. And we went to the fight. We went, we saw, we left. It was over in 91 seconds. It was actually one of the shortest championship fights in boxing history. But we had a great time together. And just their generosity around that, um, including me in uh, to go with them to something like that, uh, it still moves me and impresses me to this day. And it, it, it kind of causes me to ask the question, would, would I invite a Jewish person or a Jewish family into my home to have dinner with my family and friends? Would you? And if we did, what would they remember? Let's pray. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, we thank you for the calling of the Jewish people and your great mercy and love for them, as we read in the Hebrew Scriptures. We also thank you for the common ground that exists between Christianity and Judaism. At the same time, perhaps the most important common ground can be found in Jesus, Yeshua, who gave his life both for Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, for the glory of your kingdom. And God, I ask, help our church community, Maple Grove Covenant Church, to be such a community who gives out and reaches out and builds friendships with the other. And in doing so, that they would conclude, oh, how they love their God. Oh, how they love each other. Oh, how I want that love. Amen.